0: You're listening to the Tuesday Talks Podcast, your source of truth in communications, identity management, and technology. This week's episode joins Numerical's in-house experts, Pierce Gorman and Brett Nemroff, as they delve into the evolution of CNAM, the challenges in the telecom ecosystem, and potential solutions for improved caller authenticity.
1: Welcome to Tuesday Talks, a live discussion series where we bring truth and shed light across the brand identity, and communications industry. I'm Pierce Gorman, distinguished member of the technical staff at Numerical, and today I'm joined by a fan favorite, Brett Nemiroff, Vice President of Engineering for Voice. Brett has a rich track record of architecting and implementing cost-effective telecommunications networks. With extensive experience spanning TCPIP networking, fiber optic networks, integrated billing and provisioning systems, and high volume custom VoIP software development, Brett brings a wealth of knowledge to the discussion today. You may also remember Brett from our two parter on third party call signing today. He's back to dive into the world of CNAM and caller ID. Welcome back, Brett. Thanks, Pierce. Good to be here. Well, good. Uh, it's good to. Get together on such a, an exciting set of topics here. Caller name and uh, caller ID. Now, the way we we originally wrote this was CNAM, and I thought, well, people are going to be questioning what is you know what is CNAM? They may not have heard of that. They may have might have heard of calling name, and they've probably heard of calling ID, and maybe not understand is there a difference? Are these the same thing? Are they different? Uh, and we'll we'll jump into that we will say that CNAM is a an abbreviation for calling name, and it's a service that's been around for, for quite a long time. I think it started back in the the 90s, and I know that it, historically it was created by the incumbent local exchange carriers, so the Rbox. Uh, they had subscriber or do still have subscriber databases, and they had the names associated with those lines. And so they were able to create what they called line information databases, where that would give them the resource they needed to be able to present a name. Now they could do it for calls that were originated and terminated on their own switches, but when it happened across the network, then there needed to be another system put in place. And uh, Bellcore, which now I think known as Ericsson, used to be uh, Telcordia for a while, was the resource for doing that. And uh, I'll mention that there's two ways that calling name is typically uh, done and the two ways are there's a database that gets dipped or the calling name can be put into signaling and we'll see that same kind of architecture uh, over and over again with looking at the past uh, architectures the current architectures and the the future ones and i'll mention that um, calling name is not something that is just universal to the global world of, of telecommunications it's primarily something as far as i know in the united states and canada and not so much internationally and um in preparing for this i was thinking about that you know why is it only in in canada in the united states and it was interesting and even just between those two they they did it different because of course you know if there's only two they have to there's two ways to do it it's going to get d- done differently in both so the united states uses the uh the dip into the database and and canada actually puts the okay. calling name into a parameter within the within the sip invite or within the uh, Generic name parameter fits signaled in SS7. Anyway, in the international situation, it, it occurred to me well, it's more complicated. Can you put together a big database that has all the names that you need? And what do you do for um, international character sets? And how would you pay for it? Um, so I think those are things that have inhibited a more general use of calling name or CNAM as we know it here in the United States. Um, and then, you know, as looking forward, we can see that uh, the way that the information is made available and the ways that it's uh, transmitted and I say when I say made available either stored or sent in signaling, those are evolving too as our signaling systems, specifically store shake and call authentication uh, are evolving as as well. So so Brett, I'm going to take a, a pause there and I'm going to ask you, you know what what do you, what comes to mind when you think about uh, calling name? What is it you think that our customers are are interested in knowing about calling name?
2: Well, Pierce, you bring up some interesting points. And I, and I think the things that we really need to highlight is, um, is how does the information get there? And who has the authority to provision that information and to display that information? Because when you talk about, like, internationally, how it's done differently – we think about things like you know in Canada where they kind of expect that caller name information is transmitted with the call from the originator. But in the United States, when we use the line information database, LIDB, and CNAM dips, that information is kind of placed on there by the terminating service. So um, there's a couple of different ways that it's done it done, but I like to overall think how did all of this happen and how does it actually work? And who actually has the right to do this? When you think about it. Uh, we've got this database of phone numbers and names. Should a central authority be responsible for keeping track of that database? And if so, who should that authority be? And should anyone be allowed to say anything in that database? Should I be able to call myself whatever I want or should I have to prove who I am? So there's a lot of these like should haves and all of this, but I, I think it's interesting to, to talk about, well, how does it actually work? And I think for us to like really understand how it works, we kind of have to understand like where we came from, right? So I just want to touch a little bit on uh, the past of caller ID. Now you mentioned that like as caller ID as we know it didn't really come out until around the nineties or so. And keep in mind that you know prior to 1996, when competition was introduced into telecommunications it was pretty much just the phone company that was managing CNAM. And because of that, you had one company with one method and procedure putting names and phone numbers into this database. But after 1996, when competition was opened up, uh, there were a lot more companies that were participating in this database. And there wasn't like a single set of standards and procedures. Like if I want to call myself something else, what information do I need to prove uh, who I am? Uh, So uh, in addition to that, before the advent of, You know, voice over IP and communications over IP networks and all of this, it really was the line information database. And really what we're talking about when we talk about a line, we talk about those copper cables that come into our houses that used to be actually attached to the telephone. Because of that, it was actually kind of hard to spoof somebody else's phone number because you would actually have to be attached to their copper as well because phone numbers used to be associated to the actual line itself. In fact, caller ID at some point was actually referred to as caller line identification. But with the advent of IP communications and all of that, it's not really associated to the the line anymore. Additionally, people really got used to trusting names because the names were were provisioned by the phone company. And, And you gotta put yourself 20 years ago when you're actually taking a look at the caller ID Box. And like the very first time you got caller ID and you looked at that, you saw someone's name before they called and how amazing that must have been when you first got it. People learned to trust it because it was this brand new information that the phone company gave them. But very quickly telemarketers learned to abuse that privilege. And it did not take us long until we stopped trusting that information. It's uh, interesting. And interesting.
1: I'm yeah. going to just interrupt right there and say yeah, it's interesting because I remember, um, a story talking to my younger brother who had met this fellow who's working on this technology back in the 80s that we now call auto dialers and I thought well that's really going to be annoying because we're just going to be getting these calls like like crazy and then when calling name came out I was so excited because I thought aha I'm going to see the name and when I recognize that it's a telemarketer I'm not going to answer that call anymore well that, that worked for a bit I guess anyway
2: yeah, it, it, it worked for a bit, but uh, the telemarketers uh, are a clever bit. And they have to be clever, right? Because their whole business is about um, being effective, is getting people to answer the phone.
1: And obviously, there's a lot more than telemarketers that are making calls. We want the calls from CVS. We want the calls from Home Depot. You know, it's important to be able to get that information.
2: Right. But one of the things that is not easy to transmit or easy to analyze on the call is the intent of the call. Right. And that's something that caller ID never really transmitted. In addition to the intent not being transmitted, there has never been in caller ID any sort of um, standards for ensuring that bad information doesn't get put in there. And in addition to that, as you were saying, there's a number of databases out there that store caller ID information. So there's not just one database. There's multiple of them. And they have to be synchronized. And those synchronizations don't always happen reliably. They don't always happen at the same time. So very frequently, you might go out there, you might set your caller ID name to a particular name, but your, the old name that used to be on your number, like you just got a number uh, provision for you, it might still be sending the old number. And these are common pitfalls and problems. So I kind of go back to the original question that I asked, like, who should be responsible for collecting this information, storing this information and transmitting it? Now, um, what we have today with the AEs, uh, the analytic engines right now, uh, is these are companies that are working very closely with the terminating service providers. And what they do is they take a look at the phone number that's arriving at the terminating service provider, and they match it up in a database. And then right there, right before the last mile, they'll change the name to something that they feel is reliable, and they'll send it on to, to the customer, and they'll present that, that name to the customer. Uh, the question is, though, is should they be allowed to do that? Um, and the let's, reason why let's... I asked
1: that... Well, let's, let's be specific here. I want to make sure because, okay. you know, you, you just said that the analytic engine providers, and it's no secret, the the main three for the main three mobile providers are Transaction Network Services, can't even say it, TNS for short, HIA, and then uh, First Orion. And what you said is that they look at the calling number information that's coming in on the signaling, and then they make a decision about the name that would go on there. And I would say, yes, you're right, but maybe you're not entirely correct because those can be independent. uh, How should I put this? There are independent processes going on. For sure, the analytics engine providers are looking at those calling numbers and making a decision about whether something is going to show up in the name display of of a device, a mobile device, but they were providing a calling name service as well as the analytics service to protect people with the you know, the scam shield, the scam likely um, labeling. In which case, what I think you were saying is the name can be changed by the analytics engine provider, not from the name that was provisioned and that somebody paid to have provisioned or that somebody was paying to have displayed, but changing it to something like scam likely. Yeah,
2: and, and that, that certainly happens as well. And and, uh, so, and i yeah. go ahead.
1: Yeah, no, 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 it's you. <laughs> You were going somewhere with, you know, is that okay? I think is where you were going.
2: Yeah. And the reason why I asked, is that okay? Is because they're assuming that the phone number that came in is the actual phone number of the person who's calling, right? So in, in today's world, I could make a phone call and spoof my originating number and actually trick the AE into replacing that name at the last mile, right? There's nothing... That does that now you might be saying well hold on a second sir shaken prevents spoofing right now if if you've been watching our tuesday talks podcast you'll see we've had this discussion a number of times sir shaken does not prevent spoofing and and, and while a lot of people say that sir Shaken is the intention is to prevent spoofing it it, it really isn't and the, the reality is is that there's plenty of spoofing that happens in the network that is completely legitimate spoofing it is we don't want to get rid of it it's, it's totally legal and a quick example of that is, you know, when my kid's school calls me to tell me that after school activities are canceled because of weather, it's not the school calling me. It's some third party service that's calling me that's pretending to be the school so that I'll know that the school has a message for me. And that, that's totally legitimate. Right. Um, so uh, we in this kind of goes back to what I was saying about intent. Right. Like there's no way to like transmit the intent. And there's no way today to know necessarily that the phone number that's being transmitted is the number of the actual originator. So the question that I like to go back to is who should be responsible for transmitting the identity of the caller? Should it be the Terminator who's using this potentially wrong phone number information to put that name on? Or should it be the originator who's, who, who has no technical mechanism to prevent them from lying about who they are? Now, one of the things that if, if you've followed some of my other talks about CNM that you may have seen is I had this incident where I actually received a call from somebody who, who changed their caller ID to Darth Vader. And um, this is just an example of like something that, that can really be done. And that really did happen to me. Right. And when I when I spoke to this guy, he just explained to me that all he did was log into his carrier's website and change his name. There was no you know, upload a, uh, a a photo of your driver's license or anything like that. So um, I think that that's a fundamental challenge that we have in the network right now is where should this information come from?
1: Yeah. And, you know, you point out that stir shaking doesn't really prevent spoofing. Um, certainly it's been sold that way. And it was an intent. I'll say that and I'm going to make a little little pitch for stir shaking, even though it's a somewhat of a side, because it is important to talk about this technology in relation to um, calling name as it's evolving. And as far as the spoofing was concerned, the the idea was is that if you provided good enough information, that uh, if the number was spoofed and it was spoofed enough by the by a person who is trying to cause problem or a company trying to cause problem, you're going to have that identity information available one-off, It's sort of a penultimate idea of identity in that the originating service provider, who's probably not the one who's making the illegal robocalls, is going to be their identity on that call and so there would be accountability even if you didn't prevent spoofing. And the idea was that uh, If you had enough accountability enough enforcement then spoofing would illegal spoofing would stop now obviously there's a mixed uh mixed result so far in our journey here on stir shaken but that was the idea and but in the future um the idea of being able to have a usable identity authenticated and verifiable cryptographically verifiable that's important Uh, and you use the 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 term identity and I think we should talk about that a little bit because you mentioned the the Darth Vader example and being able to log in and do that. Now, I remember reading years ago the guidelines that were written for calling name as it was originally proposed within the Bellcore system. And one of the things you weren't supposed to be able to do was use fictitious characters or cartoon characters and Darth Vader would be an example. So there's an example where one of the databases that was being used to control the information did not have an edit mask in it to be able to look for that kind of a misuse of of the information. And maybe they just nobody ever thought to put Darth Vader in there to look for Vader or variations of it. So it's not exactly like it would be easy. And it's not exactly like you can have people using, you know, personal labor to look at all of that information as well. But uh, you mentioned Uh, identity and you you had an an example that we talked about in the preparation for this for this show that I really liked and I'd like you to kind of walk walk through your thought about okay now you've got a name but is a name enough is it trustworthy what are we really doing here so do you remember your example yeah
2: yeah yeah. so a a lot of uh, a lot of it kind of comes down to when I think about like already named stir shaken and uh, the presentation of identity um I like to compare receiving phone calls very similarly to people showing up at your house, right? And if you think about it, it, it's it's kind of the same way, right? Is if you have a stranger that shows up at your house and you don't know who they are and you have to decide whether or not to answer the door, it's very similar to like receiving a phone call and choosing whether or not to, to answer the phone, right? Um, when somebody shows up at your house and you open the door, like you're not gonna ask them um, what their address is, where they came from, right? And and this is what a phone number is. What, what is a phone number? It is it is an address. It's how to get back to somebody. Uh, that's really the only thing that it is. Um, I know a lot of people, they like to, to call it as an identity caller ID and all of this, but it's a mistake to consider it an identity. You just think about how many businesses out there, especially call centers, legitimate and illegitimate, go out there and they'll buy a phone number within five minutes, they'll start using that phone number. Phone numbers are ephemeral resources. Identity is not ephemeral, right? So uh, I think it's really important that when we think about like s- proper solutions to this particular problem, we think about proper identity, right? So what is a proper identity? If somebody showed up at the house and they showed me a crayon drawing of themselves with their name written under it and say, really, this is me. Uh, I probably wouldn't believe because it's ridiculous. Like there's there's nothing about that that's believable. Even if it was a particularly good drawing of themselves, I still probably wouldn't trust it. Now, if they showed me a government ID that was from the same state that I am a state of, and I recognized it as being a proper government ID, there's more of a reason to trust it than the crown drawing. There is a psychological process here to us applying trust to something that we see, right? And the same thing applies to caller ID. At some point, we said caller ID is something given to us by the phone company. And it had some weight to it because of that. Okay. But now it's been abused. And caller ID is effectively identity written in crayon. And that's what's showing up on our phone. And we don't trust it. Nobody trusts it. Whatever you see on your phone, if it says that uh, it's, uh, you know, the school down the street or whatever, it's not necessarily uh, accurate anymore. So, what could we do to, to change that? Is we, we need some way of linking actual identity that can be verified cryptographically, like you were saying, Pierce, into the phone call and transmitted across uh, the line. Uh, I and I personally, I believe that the the only way that we can do this with any amount of reliability and to be able to restore trust to the PSTN is to have an identity that can be cryptographically identified transmitted from the originator, because after all, only the originator knows who they are, okay? And then transmitted to the termination. And then the termination needs some way of verifying that that identity is in fact real, that there's a reason to trust it, right? Just because I have information doesn't mean that I trust that information. So there needs to be a, a, there needs to be Given a reason to trust, and then there needs to be the verified way of
1: trusting. Hundred percent, and I, I wanted you to to share your example again because I, I I like using real world examples for people to think about identity and trust. And your example of somebody coming to the door and having a crayon drawing of themselves is perfect. The example of having a government issued identity card is also perfect because we mostly trust our government. (laughs) And so we, well, we, we, and, and companies, right, will trust the credentials that are issued by the government. And and so that's uh, not just an identity, it's an attribute associated with that identity. It's something that they have that Tells you more about them than them just asserting that their name is Darth Vader or whatever their name happens to be. And it's those real world examples of uh, trust attributes that are issued by real world organizations. Could be, you know, my favorites that I always roll out are the government issued licensing. And then also uh, for corporations, people that are making um, calls are uh, insurance and. specifically security bonds, because it's a it's a source of trust that somebody else did the know your customer upfront work to make sure that that company was uh, trustworthy enough to be insured. They're not, if they can't get insurance, then that's a pretty good sign that maybe you don't want to, don't want to take that communication. Um, so we've talked about Uh, calling name, what it was historically, why it had some trust, why the trust was eroded. And we've talked about stir-shaken and cryptographic verification of the identity, not so much trust attributes. Those don't really uh, exist in a way that would be useful for knowing the caller. It's useful for knowing the caller's service provider or at least the service provider that um, put the cryptographic credentials in the call, signed the call. Um, But I think you and I believe that there is a another layer of identity the actual caller themselves which is what's supposed to be represented in calling name that we're going to plumb and make work better with um, crypt- you know with call authentication technology and that's sort of the future of things and we've talked about um, that future before and we've said that the um, signature type that would be carrying that name information and additional information such as the company logo and maybe the reason for calling as uh rich call data and there's a standard that's you know uh just about ready to issue from the internet engineering task force on rich call data that says the um you know, there's more than one standard but uh, there's one main standard that talks about the information that would be encoded and transmitted on the wire so do you want to describe a little bit of of what you see there for the future Brett
2: yeah so in the RCD draft um, it is in in my best estimation it's, it's, a, it's a new vehicle for transmitting uh, identity information or identity metadata right when we take a look at caller ID The way that uh, we think about it from back in the 90s, we think of a pairing of phone number and name. And as we moved into the world of VoIP, uh, very easily we had a display name that was attached to the from field. Um, But then we realized that um, sometimes who's making the call and what we want presented would be different. So we moved on to add remote party ID or RPID fields, which gave us the ability to not only have a from, but also have a, a presentation name attached to it as well. Uh, and then we, we migrated that from RPID to PAID, or P-asserted ID, where now we also have the mechanism of saying, I'm gonna tell you who I am, but I don't want it to be presented, I want it to be private. Um, and now we have RCD. RCD is a huge step forward. When you think about like, all those previous incantations of, of identity, it's always number and name, just those two pieces of metadata. But RCD allows us to to be a lot more rich with that data. We can we can put URLs in there. We can put J cards in there. We can put icons in there. Uh, there's a lot more interesting information in there. However, for RCD to be useful outside of a like a campus environment, like within your own network, um, it's going to have to be supported by terminating service providers, they're going to have to know what to do with that. But not only that, there has to be a way of saying, this is trustworthy. I didn't just make this stuff up. There needs to be vetting and onboarding and cryptographic signatures to make sure that that data isn't changed from the time that it was verified. So there's a whole ecosystem. Just having RCD is great to have that vehicle, but we need a way of verifying that it hasn't been changed and that it is in fact accurate
1: an excellent point because without all of that additional guide rails it couldn't it might just be a more modern version of a crayon drawing right so it goes back to it may be good that I can feel confident about your identity in terms of who you are but uh, as you mentioned before can't tell intent and with additional trust attribute information, that could be possible. And so those, those guide rails that know your customer work, if you have knowledge and confidence in that, that's, that's one of those things that improves that from being a crayon drawing into the government-issued identity card. All right. Well, we're almost out of time. I do want to uh, respond to the one question we got from David Frankel. And thank you, David, for for watching. Always appreciate it. Uh, and you asked about uh, the calling name and all the different myriad different databases. Then, if you really wanted to be accurate, you'd have to look at at least twenty sources of information. And I don't think you meant specifically twenty, but as an example. And I think your answer—you know—that's right. And I have a feeling that's why First Orion, you know, called their their product AcuName, because they were looking at as many sources as they could to find out whether or not you know what was the true and accurate name to be able to uh, supply to to a conventional. Nowadays, uh, calling name dip, and uh, so that's uh, that's a good point, and I think it's also uh, to the credit of First Ryan that they thought the same thing that you did and went to the extra effort to try and you know provide that level of uh, of accuracy.
2: Well, Pierce, so, Pierce I, I did want to add something onto that though. In terms of hacking okay. name, and I don't know what's going on under the hood there. Where is the information coming from? And uh, what terminating customers is? Are they fixing the problem for? Right? Because to David's question here, part of the problem that you have is that your originating provider is pushing it into a database, and the terminating provider is pulling it from a potentially a different database, likely a different database. So, are those two databases synchronized? And would you ever be able to fix it? If you fixed it for one terminating provider, say you fix it with T-Mobile, would it also be fixed on Verizon? Probably not. You would have to fix it in multiple places. The part of the problem that we have right now in having multiple centralized databases is that exact <laughs> problem, right? And the and I would ask the question: Should we allow multiple centralized databases? It has organically turned into that. But the question is: Is is any of that information good? Can we could we ever trust it? And should we ever trust it? And I don't think that we should. And it, it because I can still transmit a different caller ID number information and actually push that name to show up on the other side. The originator should be forced to identify themselves in a cryptographically verifiable method that can be decoded on the far end and reliably transmitted and presented. Otherwise, you know, you're know you getting one of 20 potential answers here. So I do think it's a big problem.
1: I agree with you. You're 100% correct as usual. Um, I think we're pretty much out of time thank you very much for providing such a an insightful review of things to know about caller id and calling name brett appreciate it so um, i'll be back in two weeks I'd like to thank all of you for joining us for another episode of uh tuesday talks uh, i'll be back in two weeks on tuesday september 19th with our general counsel and head of global public policy keith Buell, for a sip knock 2023 recap This year's conference focuses on the call and text authentication ecosystem and our very own Rebecca Johnson will be moderating a panel on the future of end-to-end branded calling using authentication. So we're very excited to report back with key takeaways and hot takes. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time. Thank you.
0: We'd like to thank you for tuning in to another episode of Tuesday Talks. Our next live episode will be on Tuesday, September 19th, when Numerical's Pierce Gorman and Keith Buell will unpack insights from SIPNOC 2023's focus on the call and text authentication ecosystem. Explore key innovations, personal highlights, and the potential impact on businesses and consumers in this captivating recap. Join us in our mission to promote transparency and collaboration to return trust to communications. Simply click the link to register and join us at the live show. Invite a friend and be sure to submit a question you'd like to have answered live.